to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at legal and technical issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me three esteemed panellists to discuss the new duty of care introduced in the New South Wales Design and Building Practitioners Act 2020. Under this legislation, the common law duty of care is being extended. And this is, of course, a unique approach and could have significant consequences, which we will talk about today. And the first guest I have with me is Aidan Davey. Aidan is a Juris Doctor student at Melbourne Law School. I also have with me Dr. Matthew Bell, Senior Lecturer and Co-Director of Studies for Construction Law at Melbourne Law School. Matthew also has his PhD from King's College in London, which focused on regulation to protect the health and safety of dwelling occupants. And he is also a founding director of SOCLA and former chair of the SOCLA Academic Subcommittee. And finally, last but not least, I have with me Kiri Parr, the immediate past president of Consult Australia and practitioner in construction law for more than 20 years. Thank you everybody for joining me today. I thought perhaps we could start with an outline of the background to this reform and what issue it is designed to address. Matthew, did you want to take that one? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Melissa. So I think obviously here we're talking about the statutory duty of care to protect against defects resulting in pure economic loss. And all, all these these terms, as we'll see, are, are important. Uh, under Part 4, of course, of the uh, Design and Building Practitioners Act, which came into force on the 10th of June of this year, 2020. So Aidan's going to take us through the, the detail. Uh, but on its face, it does appear to be quite a radical intervention, which might appear to have come out of nowhere. Uh, but in fact, it's simply the latest chapter in a decades-long balancing act to try to give appropriate protections to dwelling owners via civil actions against building practitioners. And I'm sure it won't be the last chapter either, because history tells us that this sort of strong intervention in one area of regulation here through legislation in New South Wales will be reacted to in other areas of regulation, including contractual measures and insurance coverage. We'll talk about all that, no doubt, later on as well. So Balancing Act is the key here, as with most regulatory measures, and we need to bear in mind that we are talking about economic loss, which traditionally has been the province of contract law, not tort. So the history can in some ways be traced right back to Donoghue and Stevenson in the 1930s, but I won't go back that far. Uh, it's really been a decades-long struggle to define the limits of negligence as against contract in English and Australian law. So the modern history in Australia was when we saw quite a radical shift in the judge-made law in Brian and Maloney uh, back in 1995. Uh, it was especially radical because just a few years earlier than that, in the House of Lords in Murphy and Brentwood, the UK had taken a restrictive view about duties of care. So in Brian Maloney, uh, the High Court recognised that there was a duty of care owed by a builder to a subsequent purchaser of a house in Launceston for the economic consequences of defective work. But then several years followed, exploring the limits of that duty, especially whether it applies to dwellings only or also to commercial buildings. 
And at the same time, most states and territories were consolidating their already quite extensive regimes for statutory quality-related warranties, which came out of reforms in South Australia and New South Wales and Victoria in the 1980s, which apply not only to the original owner who had the work done, but also to subsequent purchases during the relevant limitation period. And that can be up to 10 years after the work was done. So all of this was coming into play in 2004 when another case came before the High Court in Woolcock Street Investments and the court there confirmed in essence that the only gateway to a duty of care in this area was via the salient features, that is relevant features, the most prominent of which seems to be vulnerability and that in most cases commercial parties will be unable to show that they're vulnerable in the relevant sense because they are assumed to have the opportunity to protect themselves through contract. Fast forward 10 years to 2014 and the Brookfield multiplex case involving a mixed-use high-rise development in Chatswood, north of uh, the city in Sydney, reaches the High Court. There, there were strong statements that the proper place to look for protection against economic loss is contract and that if there were to be any extension to the duties of care, uh, that was something for Parliament to consider alongside the mix of statutory warranties. So in New South Wales' case, under the Home Building Act. And then in the last few years, the spotlight has been turned back on the issue of whether individual homeowners have recourse against building preciousness, not just through high-profile failures at Grenfell, the Opal Building, La Crosse Building in Melbourne and elsewhere, but also the endemic level of habitability-related defects across new apartment buildings. And if you haven't seen the Four Corners story cracking up from 2019, you definitely should look it up. Uh, so a common theme across all of the angst felt by homeowners, of course, most poignantly expressed by the residents living with combustible cladding, please listen to the BBC's Grenfell Inquiry podcast on that, is that these residents feel like they're having to deal with the issues alone, and that they don't have anything like the rights of recourse that they assume that they would have. Even on a fairly straightforward building defect, navigating the highly complex legal schemes, including the many gaps in the statutory warranty coverage and the insurance that's supposed to sit behind them, is incredibly difficult. So, with all this in mind, it's probably not surprising that the New South Wales government, wanting to change the game in a meaningful way, has adopted within its six pillars of reform what on its face appears to be a pretty radical intervention. Thanks so much for that background, Matthew. That's that's fantastic. Um, Aidan, uh, would you be able to take us through in detail the new duty of care? I certainly can. So, as Matthew mentioned earlier, uh, most of the provisions regarding the duty can be found in Part 4 of the new Design and Building Practitioners Act. Outside of Part 4, there are relevant provisions in Clause 5 of Schedule 1 to the Act, which relate to the retrospective operation of the duty, uh, a controversial issue which I'm sure we'll touch on a bit later. There are also relevant definitions which affect the scope of the duty in Part 1 of the Act, specifically Sections 3, 4 and 5. The section which establishes the duty itself is section 37, subsection 1, uh, which provides that a person who carries out construction work has a duty to exercise reasonable care to avoid economic loss caused by defects in or related to a building for which the work is done and arising from the construction work. 
construction work is defined in section 36 to include building work, design work, the manufacture or supply of a building product used for building work, or supervision, coordination, or substantive control over any of these three categories of activity. Under subsection 5 of section 36, the regulations can also alter the definition of construction work. Uh, turning then to the definition of building work itself, uh, it's defined in section 4 of the Act as work involved in the construction, making of alterations or additions to, or the repair, renovation or protective treatment of a building of a class or type prescribed by the regulations. Section 36 then extends the definition of building work to also include residential building work within the meaning of the Home Building Act 1989, which essentially refers to the construction of dwellings. So there are two things to note here. The first is that the definition of construction work, those kinds of work to which the duty applies, is extremely broad. So it certainly looks at first glance as though the introduction of this duty has the potential to impact a broad range of actors across the construction industry and related industries. However, the second thing to note is that we don't yet know exactly how widely this duty will apply because all categories of construction work are tied to the definition of building work, which in turn is limited to work on classes of building which will be prescribed by the regulations. Um, and also that the definition of construction work itself can be broadened or narrowed by the regulations. So all we know for sure at the moment is that by virtue of that extended definition of building work in section 36, that anyone who does any of the currently defined categories of construction work on buildings which will be used as dwellings will owe the duty. Moving on to who the duty is owed to, subsection 2 of section 37 provides that it's owed to each owner of the land on which construction work is carried out and each subsequent owner. Owner is defined quite broadly in section 36, subsection 1, in terms of persons who are entitled to the freehold estate in law or equity, persons entitled to the rents or profits of the land in various capacities, including as beneficial owner, trustee, and mortgagee in possession, um, owners of a lot in a strata scheme, or the association uh, for a community precinct or neighbourhood scheme if the land is subject to such a scheme. The definition is also extended in subsection 3 to include all owners corporations specifically. Um, it's useful to note here that person um, per section 21 of the 1987 Interpretation Act in New South Wales includes an individual, a corporation and a body corporate or politic. So these other entities can also be owed the duty. In terms of the limitation periods applicable to the duty, so it's the duty under subsection 41, uh, sorry, under section 41 is subject to the Civil Liability Act 2002, which means that it's subject to the general six-year limitation period from which the defect is first known or manifest. Um, the duty is also subject to a 10-year long-stop limitation period under the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act 1979, section 6.20. I'll come to it a bit later, but essentially there are questions as to whether that 10-year long-stop period applies to all categories of construction work under the Design and Building Practitioners Act because building work is defined differently in the EPAA. So, Aidan, you have been one of the first to publish an article on this new legislation. Um, can I start with you to discuss the questions that you have raised in your article about it? In particular, the first one, I should say, um, the first one which relates to the definition of owner. 
One thing that I want to preface this discussion with is that when I wrote the article, um, it was referring to the second draft of the Design and Building Practitioners Bill, um, a November draft, uh, and on the 2nd of June this year, um, after I published the article, there were a number of significant amendments made before the bill was passed. Um, so my the, the three major criticisms or categories of criticism that I spoke about in my article were that the definition of owner was um, too restrictive um, and the definition of the classes of building to which the the, the law would apply. Um, both of those things have been changed by the, the the late amendments that have been made. So, Do you reckon they read your article? <laughs> uh, they either read... Read my article, uh, <laughs> Avid Subscriptions of the Australian Constructional Bulletin, or perhaps more likely the criticisms that I raised uh, mirrored those that um, uh, industry groups and um, people lobbying the government were raising. <laughs> indeed, indeed. The final category of criticism that I raised in my article um, and the provisions have remained unchanged in, in the final version of the Act, so that, that category remains um, the same, is that it's fairly ambiguous um, who liability will end up being imposed on um, by virtue of a couple of the, of the provisions within the Act. Um, the first of those is the fact that the duty is non-delegable, um, so that is uh, can be found in section 39 of the act as, as enacted um, that raises some significant questions in terms of where liability will ultimately ultimately lie um, and also section 40 which um, provides that no contract or stipulation um, can alter the effect of the duty um, so that raises some significant questions as well yeah, absolutely. The analysis of the definition of owner uh, that I raised in my paper was with respect to the then later second print of the bill. Um, so the the change in the 2nd of June amendments was the change of the word individual in the definition with person. Um, so previously the duty only applied to individuals um, or owners' corporations, um, but now it's been extended to, to persons, which includes those corporate and other entities. So... Um, or entities like small businesses um, that I was saying should possibly also be um, entitled to the duty consider considering they have similar financial uh, leverage as, as their, their owners in their own individual capacities, um, that they should also, you know, also gain the benefit of the duty. So that change has been made. Um, so that, that section of my criticism has kind of been been answered. I guess the point that I noticed in your paper was the fact that um, I thought you quite rightly pointed out that um, it's. I, I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to consider business as um, wealthy and able to protect themselves necessarily. Uh, a, a lot of them obviously uh, have the same difficulties that individual persons do with respect to um, finances and the ability to protect themselves as well as negotiating power in those circumstances. Another one of the most controversial aspects of this new duty, I think, is that it will operate retrospectively. Can you tell us a bit about how that's supposed to work? I can certainly try my best. Um, so if we look at Schedule 1 to the Act, um, Clause 5, Subclause 1, extends the operation of the duty to construction work carried out before the imposition of the duty. Um, this extension is somewhat limited by Subclause 2, which essentially provides that the duty does not apply if the loss first became apparent more than 10 years prior to the imposition of the duty. Subclause 3 then provides that the duty can be argued in action 
in an action for a breach of a common law duty, which had already been commenced prior to the introduction of Section 37. So that could have significant ramifications uh, in terms of currently running litigation. Under subclause four, uh, contracts made before the commencement of the law cannot operate to annul, vary or exclude the duty. It's also worth noting here that the practical extent of the retrospective operation is limited by the interaction with the 10-year long-stop limitation period in Section 620 of the EPAA that I mentioned earlier. Um, this is deemed to apply to actions under the Design and Building Practitioners Act by virtue of a note under Section 41 of that Act. So Section 6.20 of the EPAA provides that claims for loss or damage arising out of or in connection with defective building work cannot be brought more than 10 years after the date of completion of the work. Building work in this Act is defined in Section 6.1 as any physical activity involved in the erection of a building. Section 6.19 extends the definition to also include design or inspection of building work. So by contrast, uh, I explained the, the broadness of the definition of construction work in the Design and Building Practitioners Act earlier, um, that this includes building work and design work, as well as the supply or manufacture of building products uh, and supervision, coordination or control of any of these things. So there's an open question in my mind uh, as to whether some of the activities in the latter two categories would meet the definition of building work under the EPAA such that they will also be subject to the 10-year long-stop limitation period. So there are definitely some, some open questions as to open-ended liability for, um, for some categories of construction work. Another major issue you talk about in your paper, Aidan, is the ambiguity about the duty of care that is being imposed. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about those concerns you've raised? Yeah, definitely. So there are two provisions in particular, and I, I flagged them a little bit earlier, um, which I argued in my article create significant ambiguity with respect to where liability will ultimately lie for a breach of this duty. Um, and as I said, these provisions remain unchanged in the Act as passed. There, there are different section numbers now, but the, the drafting remains unchanged. Uh, the first is the non-delegable nature of the duty as outlined in Section 39 of the Act. So in Burnie, a High Court majority described a non-delegable duty as a duty to ensure reasonable care is taken. Under Section 5Q of the Civil Liability Act 2002 in New South Wales, which applies to the, the Design and Building Practitioners Act by virtue of Section 41.3 of that Act, the liability of someone under a non-delegable duty is to be determined as if they were vicariously liable for the negligence of those to whom they subcontracted the work. So this then interacts with the issue of whether those still higher up the contractual chain are concurrent wrongdoers for the purposes of the proportionate liability scheme in the Civil Liability Act. So under section 35, subsection 3, subsection B of the Civil Liability Act, a court may have regard to the comparative responsibility of any concurrent wrongdoer who is not a party to the proceedings. It's unclear whether an assessment of comparative responsibility as between co-defendants in a contractual hierarchy a breach of the non-delegable duty to ensure care was taken for, uh, for work completed by those lower in the contractual chain is impacted by the contractual responsibilities uh, of each party. If it is, then it would be prudent to sue those at the top of the contractual chain uh, in any action under this duty as they're responsible for all of the work. Um, they're contractually responsible for all of the work undertaken by those uh, below them in the chain. 
The second provision which raises ambiguity in my mind is, is section 40, subsection 2, which provides that no contract can operate to annul, vary or exclude a provision in this part, uh, including section 39. Whether this affects contractual warranties of due care and skill uh, or similar clauses in contracts is an open question. So, for example, if I'm contractually responsible under a head contract for an entire building project and I engage a subcontractor on a contract which contains a warranty of due care and skill, and then that subcontractor acts negligently, I'm sued and held liable for breach of the non-delegable duty to ensure they acted with reasonable care. Does the ability to counter sue, which would in substance negate that liability for the non-delegable duty, constitute a variation or exclusion of the non-delegable duty? I think that's an open legal question. Even if it does not, the different applicable limitation periods uh, can expose contractors higher up the chain should they be held uh, liable for, for the uh, non-delegable duty uh, to a liability gap. So claims under part four of the act, as I've mentioned before, can be brought within six years of the defect first becoming known or manifest or within 10 years of the work being completed, whichever is shorter. Comparatively, the limitation period for bringing contractual claims under warranties of due care and skill is six years, leaving a gap of up to four years and potentially more if not all categories of construction work um, are subject to the 10 year long stop limitation period. So uh, my criticism uh, in my article was that this this ambiguity makes it extremely difficult to, to factor the risk of liability into contract prices. Um, it also significantly limits the prophylactic effect of carelessness um, intended by the imposition of liability for negligence uh, because it won't necessarily be those who are actually negligent who will be ultimately held financially liable. Um, it also greatly increases the complexity of an action for breach of this duty. Now, Given that this is this entire, the entire point of this legislation is is for consumer protection, this ambiguity reduces its utility significantly as an effective consumer protection mechanism because only the largest claims uh, will be worth pursuing. Given how complex um, such an action will be, especially a test case. Absolutely. Well, I'm already thinking that I need to book all of you in for the follow-up podcast in two years' time to see what has actually occurred and how it's how it's played out. But Matthew, one of the concerns industry will hold, I think, is about how this new duty of care will change who is liable. Now, one scenario that comes to mind is with latent defects, um, issues that will turn up sometime after the building is completed. Uh, do you see um, or do you have any comment on the complexities that um, might start emerging there, especially if the parties have uh, stopped operating along the way or the interaction uh, with the statutory duties of care, uh, which operate at the 10-year mark for some of the builders under the legislation? Well, my comment would be that you're absolutely right that it's going to be extremely complex. And uh, in some ways, it's actually very simple to see what's going to be happening as a result of people listening to the analysis that Aiden's given and many other firms uh, are doing uh, similar sort of analysis of this act. What's the natural reaction going to be to the extent possible? And, you know, we know there's no contracting out provisions in the act. To the extent possible, the natural reaction will be to try and sheet home uh, that liability to others if 
so it's possible. And the natural reaction will also be to try and limit that liability. But it goes beyond that. Uh, you know, the, the real difficulty, I suppose, from a regulatory point of view is because even if there is liability, uh, it's too easy at the moment for companies to go into liquidation. And that can then mean, as, as we're seeing at the moment with the class action, which is running against uh, Fairview as a cladding supplier, uh, that might ultimately frustrate the ability of the, uh, the class action to recover money from that uh, cladding supplier. I'm not saying that they would or wouldn't be liable in, this, in these circumstances, but it really goes to what I said before, and I'm not really answering your question, Melissa, but it is a very, very important question. Uh, how will the industry react to all of this? And, and what we know from years of experience with any sort of regulatory intervention, if the industry sees that as putting unfair uh, liability on them, then there will be a pushback. And that pushback will largely come through either contractual means, if that's possible, or through ultimately uh, insulating yourself against the possibility of having to pay out. And there's all sorts of tactics that can be taken in order to do that. Absolutely. Well, I think um, Kiri will, will no doubt certainly have something to offer here. No, thanks, Mel. I this makes me think about how to, how will the market respond, and this is from the non-legal um, perspective, and I think this is a particularly uh, uh, difficult scenario because we're being told that we won't be able to contract out. Um, our ability to limit that liability through contractual means is going to be more challenging. And in some respects, this could be good because I think one of the challenges is uh, we are using a lot of contracts that are all about trying to move liability around it. So, we, we, you know, I can see the overall purpose and goal of this. Um, but from a broader market perspective, the market's already been extraordinarily challenged post the aluminium composite panel issue that's playing through. And one of the market responses is having a lot of companies leave the markets. So if I'm sitting here as a... a as somebody who, who's running a consulting or a supply firm, your first question has been, can I effectively trade in the residential building market? Am I able to create a structure that means that I can take responsibility for my work and be exposed to a, 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 le a legal risk that I can manage? And there's a few things that really play into that, isn't there? Um, so I think you'll probably find a, one of your first strategies is not to play in that market. And I think that might be a strategy adopted, especially by the larger end of the market. Yeah, well, if they don't need to, then why bother? The large engineering houses, why would you take that risk and that uncertainty, especially given that it's such a tight and pressured market yeah. already? If I'm at the small to medium end size of that market, I'm sitting there going, well, either I'm going to use a small company structure mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe does not have many assets to meet this risk anyway, mm. um, or I'm not going to trade. I'm going to go find something else to do. Yeah. Um, so we're doing this all at the same time of a pandemic when the building market is being squeezed like nothing else. So there's money pouring in to the construction industry, but that's very much government-led projects. It is. The building, pro the building market is really stressed at the moment. Um, and, and I'm sitting there going, you've got to run a business, it's a building market, it's DNC, it's highly fragmented, you've got this increasing liability. 
holistically, we really do want this legislation to put pressure on that part of the market that hasn't been building and delivering a good product. Yep. That would be great because long term, that's not doing anyone any favours. It's going to take a little while before we get there, isn't it, though? Mm. Um, So in terms of ultimately where do we get to a market that is responding to developers who have a long-term game, who are focused on quality, who can deliver integrated teams where everybody is able to do their job well and to understand that risk and deliver good quality product to the market. We absolutely want that, but that's a long way from where a lot of the market is playing right now. Can I throw another spanner into it? Or did Matthew, did you have something to say there? There's, There's a pretty clear goal for not just this legislative intervention, but across the six pillars that's been, um, I think, quite rightly pushed by the New South Wales Building Commissioner and, and by the government. And I think it's as easy as saying that we don't want to have more people turned out of their apartment buildings on Christmas Eve as we had with the Opal Tower building. But how do you get to that result? I think what Kerry's saying is that this sort of intervention might actually not just backfire but end up skewing the market further without achieving that result. So basically, you know, what we've got in New South Wales is, is quite an, an interesting, I think, uh, division of approach if our main concern is, for example, rectifying existing combustible cladding on buildings, quite a different approach in New South Wales to Victoria. So Victoria has taken the approach of setting up Cladding Safety Victoria and a public fund, largely public fund of several hundred million dollars to rectify the existing cladding. And that's got its own problems, but it's a public uh, approach to the rectification issue, whereas New South Wales is very much taking the view that this should be, through this legislation, a private matter. In other words, extending private civil rights to bring actions against, as Aidan has said, very wide varieties of building practitioners to then fix up things which might have been done poorly in the last up to 10 years, but that is really by way of private court actions. And because they're by way of private court actions, we then get back into this basic problem that it's going to take several years to find out what the actual effect of this legislation is as things make their way through the courts. So in terms of actually trying to do exactly what Kiri has has identified, which is something that the New South Wales Building Commissioner has been very strong on, that is get rid of the bad apples in the barrel, whether they're developers or builders or design practitioners or whatever else. In terms of getting rid of those bad apples in the barrel, I'm just not sure what this design, uh, sorry, what this duty of care extension is going to do to assist in that. I think what is probably more directly relevant to that to that outcome is the also quite interventionist regime under, for example, the Residential Apartment Buildings Compliance and Enforcement Powers Act, which we could talk about another day, but you know, that that offers the opportunity for the building commissioner and his staff to go in and inspect if and if there are serious defects in apartment buildings, 
there won't be an occupation certificate um, uh, issued. So these do need to be looked at holistically, but I am concerned that once people realise the extent of the uh, duty of care issues and the ones we're, we've talked about and what we're about to talk about, perhaps it's not going to move the market uh, towards better quality buildings in the way that you'd hope for. And if I can jump in, just, just to add to what, what Matthew said there, the if the goal is to root out the bad apples in the barrel, if my assessment that uh, under the non-delegable nature of the duty, you can also pursue entities above uh, the entity who's committed the negligence in the contractual chain, that means that you're only going to be getting rid of bad apples if those bad apples are at the very top of the chain. If the bad apples are lower in the contractual chain, as Kiri was saying, they're probably going to have limited assets to kind of meet these liabilities. So they're not going to be the ones that are pursued uh, in these kind of actions. So if you're, go if you're going for everyone at the top of the chain um, in the actions that end up being brought, then it's only if the bad apples are the ones at the top that, that you're actually going to, to root them out. Yeah, so that, that to me is reinforcing how complex a system is, is at play here. Um, I think this is a good segue into thinking about how the insurance market will respond. As Matthew said, this is playing with the contractual liability between uh, parties in the private market. It's not a, a government-led um, process. So how are the insurers of all of these builders, consultants, engineers, certifiers, suppliers going to react? And it's a really complex time in the market because over the last several years, the PI market has been hardening. Um, insurers globally have been losing money due to a whole range of uh, largely natural events that their policies, their coverage has have is being responded to. Uh, the insurers looked at their all of the books of insurance policies that they've been writing and they haven't been making money on PI insurance for a long time. And we've already had two years of insurers leaving the market, of the insurance becoming much more narrow and of premium growth. So that's already at play and it's already been very uh, strongly in play in New South Wales. And there was sort of a mini crisis over the last two, two couple of years where certifiers couldn't get insurance. Mm. So this legislation is going to bring that risk in play much more broadly. And I'm certainly hearing that we have to expect at the very least premium increases yep. by a substantial amount. Number two, people won't be able to get insurance. So we've got a market where, you know, what part of the market can you play in? Can you even get insurance? That's going to be a fundamental risk. Um, and if, particularly if you're new to the market, if you're wanting to enter the market, being a new player without a track record, you're going to be less attractive to insurance. And then... How hard will this market go? Because there's a risk that you've got insurance insurers who might, might say, I'm not going to cover you if you play in the domestic building market, for example. Yep. So we don't quite know where that will play. And it was interesting if, if you were close to the industry and saw what happened with the insurance response for the composite cladding, 
it was month by month development by those insurers. So we're not going to know that part of the market response for quite some time. You know, at the early days, it was, yes, we think we're all going to be able to get new policies. We think they'll come without exclusions or they'll be narrow or it won't have a cost. And it was only after time when the nature of that risk started clarifying for the insurers that, you know, the market was able to work out if they could get insurance and how much it was going to cost. But we're going to go back into that cycle again um, and I think it's going to be tighter. This this has more uncertainty than what was playing through before. I think the insurers will be thinking long and hard about this non-delegation, this uh, retrospective operation, the fact that you con- can't contract out of it. It's, it's going to be really hard to manage and price because of all of these uncertainties we've been talking about. I'll jump in there as well and just note that um, at some point in the consultation pro- process for the uh, the drafting of the the act, the Insurance Council of Australia wrote a letter to to the minister, um, essentially saying that there are no insurance products currently on the market for a number of these kind of liabilities that that might come to exist on the on the basis of this this act, um, and the insurance market is likely not going to respond to to create those kinds of insurance products. So just be be very aware. And then that also ties into to the point I was making before about if it's not clear where liability will ultimately lie, number one, that's difficult for insurers to price the risk. Um, and then number two, it also makes it more important for people playing in the industry to be able to price the risk because if they're not going to be covered by insurance and it's coming out of their own pockets, they need to know what kind of risks they might be liable so that for so that they can set their businesses up um, as best as possible to, to kind of negate that risk. Um, and the opportunity has been entirely taken away from from players with the retrospective operation of the bill for projects that have, have already been completed um, under a, a, an existing status of the law, which has now kind of been upended. Um, and admittedly, the, the government in New South Wales have had suggested that, have noted that uh, retrospective operation is not ideal, but they decided it was the lesser of two policy evils. Um, whether that actually plays out or not, um, given the the small margins of, of profit that typically, um, cat- uh, sorry, that that typically define the residential building sector, um, and whether the kind of insolvencies that we see that then flow down to to smaller businesses down contractual chains, um, whether we actually see a net benefit is an open question. That's spot on, Aidan. I've got a legal argument that I think we'll see run in the next 12 months, which is if a PI insurance policy follows the common law duty of care, will it respond to the statutory duty of care? So most statutory obligations are covered under PI policies by specific extensions. Is this... Uh, legislative duty of care going to be covered by a standard PI policy that only covers the common law duty of care. Mm. Um, so there's a fundamental question about whether this duty is even insured under a standard PI policy. Yeah, that's also the, uh, there's a specific provision uh, in section 37, which sets up the duty of care that kind of tosses that question up, which basically says that a person uh, to whom the duty of care is owed is entitled to damages for the breach as if it were established by the common law. Um so whether that kind of... We'll take that one to the High Court, hey? <laughs> I just can't help but see attrition. I think there will be a degree of attrition. If you can't insure against the risk, if you can't contract out of it, um, and you can't bear it, what's your option? If the policy goal is to make sure that there are 
competent people who are well enough paid, whether they're contractors or designers or whatever else, to make sure that they do a proper job in building apartment buildings and whatever else, then this, again, is an example of where it's all very well to legislate for something, but if you haven't consulted properly with the insurance industry, and consultation ultimately means you need to have a very good sense of what what's going on in the London insurance market and through reinsurers and everything, because we're, we're not, when it comes to insurance, an island in New South Wales, let alone Australia. If you haven't done uh, that proper consultation, you can't simply assume that there will be insurance products out there to cover what m- potentially is a multi, multi-billion dollar liability for the industry. It's residential housing in Australia. It's shocking. Has been going up in price and price. So how do we maintain affordable housing? And my concern with this is how it will drive up price. Uh, I mean, I've got to counter that with, I actually think we need reform. Um, But the other issue at play has been we've had a number of cases recently where judges have taken an expansionist view of what an engineer's or an architect's duty of care is. So if I combine this legislation with that duty of care and, and how it's being interpreted, then if I'm in the market, then what I've got to fight for is a proper scope of services and a fee that matches meeting that duty of care. Yes. Now, I think that's good because we have too many models that are fragmenting people's services. The professional services are being pushed down into smaller and smaller boxes. You know, it's a pathway to get the approval as opposed to what is the right decision. So if anything, the response is going to lead to a more managed, more integrated, more collaborative process for the design and building of buildings. That's good. But this interim phase, as we work that out, I'm really concerned that one of the things it's going to do is is drive up the cost of a housing, which is the last thing New South Wales does. So how does that policy balance with affordable housing policy? I think it's going to be a a really big challenge. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. So, Kiri, as you know, across the broader supply chain, one of the tools they use um, to balance the risk and liability are limitations of liability. How do you see that um, playing out in this context? Well, I think we've just introduced an even more uncertainty than what we already had. Um, So one of the key tools that a company is going to use is a limit of a limitation of liability, a contractual liability that says, I'm doing this piece of work for you, it's worth $100,000, but my liability across this entire project has to cap out somewhere. I can't bear the risk of this project. Um, there's already uncertainty in Australian law about being able to limit that liability under the misleading incident of conduct argument. But I think that the, this piece of legislation is just really introducing even more uncertainty. Um, I'm, I'm really interested to hear Matthew's views. Uh, you know, what is the what is the capacity of the parties in this business-to-business transaction side of the delivery of a project? What is their capacity to actually find that commercial balance between that risk-reward equation? And there are Again, this is going to be a consequence of a market. If if we can't find that balance, we can't price it, we can't insure it. Um, and insurers will be thinking about that because insurers are much more comfortable in a market where they know that that, that allocation of risk can 
can be known in advance. Yeah, and of course, it simply brings in the constant concern in the construction industry that the, I'll say less sophisticated, but I I mean less sophisticated in the sense that they're unable to get uh, legal advice, they're unable to get involved in sophisticated contracting measures, measures. It's the less sophisticated end of the the contracting chain that will be saddled with that liability. And they won't be able to bear that liability when push comes to shove. There are so many cases that have been reported, and I'm sure thousands which have never been reported, uh, whereby a subcontractor is left carrying the can uh, for all of this liability, but they can't actually... um, bear that liability through insurance or other means. So the real the real problem with, again, it's all can, tending to be counterproductive that parties will quite naturally do whatever they can within the limits of the law to be able to insulate themselves from liability, but it will be carried by somebody. And if that somebody is the consumer, if that somebody is the homeowner, if that somebody is a supplier who's come into the Australian market, I don't know, like with the Infinity Cables debacle a few years ago, if that's somebody who's come into the um, Australian market thinking that, you know, it's not a difficult thing to import products or whatever else and then to put them on the market, that's how commerce works. But if that person is unable to themselves pass on that liability to others, then it'll just end up resting again with the most vulnerable in our society, which tend to be um, residents of these high-rise apartment buildings. Yeah, Matthew, I'm sitting there thinking if I was a private practice lawyer acting for uh, a part of the supply chain, I'm the tools available to me are some really creative indemnities and I'm an, an absolute reverse indemnity on the risk profile. Um, and... I, and I'm sitting here thinking, we've just made the litigation even more complex. So it, it's... The litigation becomes more complex and naturally the reaction from the legislature also becomes heightened. Yeah. So the unfair contract terms and the way that uh, the ACCC is going after all sorts of players in the industry yeah. and the way it'll be extended next year to insurance arrangements as well is a natural reaction by the legislature, who, of course, local members of parliament have constantly got uh, their their local constituents in their office saying, there should be a remedy for me in these circumstances. There should be better quality buildings. I expect that we're in an advanced economy and that we shouldn't have these sorts of defects. So, yeah, it just goes around and around. Absolutely. And I think the question is how fast can the market respond and I said, it, it, with our market being under so much pressure right now and people are going to be, the building market in particular, there's lots of people who are doing it really hard. That market has absolutely come off over the last few years. Will they hold in current behaviours, which are fragmentation, silos, um, not focusing on quality in the hope that and, you know, with fingers crossed that the liability won't emerge or are we going to get that behavioural shift? And the construction industry is a difficult industry to shift behaviours in. Yeah, which is why, and I do want to say this to be fair to the New South Wales Building Commissioner, the way in which David Chandler has, I think, been highly engaged 
and it's only been a year since he was appointed, highly engaged with the industry, out on site, posting on LinkedIn, entering the debate and really emphasising the six pillars around collaborative contracting, sharing of information, increasing skills and getting rid of bad apples. And it sounds like, you know, the people who are not bad apples in the industry are very supportive of that. So this is the right approach. Uh, but when it comes to this, this part of the legislative response, it is problematic. Yeah, and I, and I think we need to actually commend that approach, that focus on quality and regulation and the bigger, the bigger system piece that is being focused on New South Wales is absolutely something to be commended. This duty of care element has got complexity sitting with it that I think is going to be really hard to work our way through. I'm certainly going to be very interested to see how it plays out. Thank you very much, Aidan, Matthew and Kiri, for joining me today to talk about this very important piece of legislation, which is absolutely going to have very significant uh, ramifications in the industry. And uh, certainly going forward, we're going to have to watch this space uh, very carefully and, and see what the response is. And uh, no doubt uh, we will have a follow-up discussion <laughs> in due course. Thank you again. Listeners, um, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes by searching SCL Australia. Thanks very much. And we look forward to bringing you the next podcast. 